This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Why does a person need to get the gun right now and go use it? Can you wait a week? Have you ever been upset at somebody and a week later you got over it? Maybe we give it a week before you can walk away with your gun. What's wrong with that? Maybe we make it two weeks. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Arm Scholar Podcast. In this episode of the podcast, we will be responding once again to a video that Patrick Bet David did. And it was a video he did in response to the passing of the Bipartisan Safers Communities Act. This is an act that's currently in place. It was one of the first pieces of gun control legislation that was passed in a really long time through a bipartisan vote. And it's just something that's been in the news quite often because now it's being implemented. In fact, even Joe Rogan recently jumped in and was talking about how the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act is in fact impacting other things that was unanticipated. So let's take a look at this and let's see what he actually thinks. So the president just signed a Bipartisan Safer Community Act in reaction to the events, the tragic events that took place in Uvalde. But the interesting thing is when you break down the act, we'll get into it, None of it would have prevented the shooter from doing what he did in Uvalde. So why are we thinking like we finally solved the solution? So I said, listen, team, let's come up with some data because people lie, numbers don't. Let's look at the data. Let's look at some stats. Will we find one stat that will say, here's what will tell us a big part of the story? Because some of the stuff they can do, maybe it would have prevented 1% of the mass shooting, maybe 3%, maybe 5% but we're looking at what could have prevented 90% of the mass shooting. So here's what we're gonna look at. Timeline of gun control in US, what the average American gun owner looks like, highest gun owning state, lowest gun owning state, number of guns purchased last year, gun ownership by firearm type, what solutions work, and what solutions don't. So let's get right into it. Now, this is a fairly long video that I will actually link down below if you wanna watch the entire video, it's about 20 minutes. But what he does first is he walks through some statistics Statistics that you guys have all heard about certain incidents like this, how they occur, what numbers they occur, the actual realities of some of the claimed gun violence statistics, what they really are. And then he talks through a timeline of claimed gun control and laws in the United States. Now, um, I would recommend that you guys go watch that. The timeline is actually very interesting because it seems like they leave out quite a bit as far as the Second Amendment context is concerned. Um, they include some things that I find kind of curious. For example, some of the things that they leave out are the Supreme Court's decision in Heller, um, the Supreme Court's decision in Miller, Caetano, um, you know, those very big landmark Second Amendment decisions by the Supreme Court were not included in the timeline at all, but they include some other types of cases from the Supreme Court in other um, lower courts, which I find interesting. But one of the things they also leave out is the 1994 ban on so-called assault weapons, that federal ban, and that it's sunset. Uh, they don't include that at all, which again is very interesting. And then for some of the things that they did include is they talked about the incident in Las Vegas and then President Trump's response in that. 
But specifically, what they talked about is his response where he said that he wanted to put in place national red flag laws, which, of course, has not happened. Trump did call for that. But one of the more curious things, again, that they leave out is Trump's response to the Las Vegas incident and him pushing for the ATF to pass the new rule, which banned bump stocks as actual so-called machine guns. And that's critical because the bump stock issue is really what then led to all the other ATF overreach issues that we are currently dealing with. So it's really interesting, like I mentioned, that some things were included in their timeline, some things were left out. Um, it just kind of signals to me that maybe they just did a cursory view review of some of these issues, which I understand um, you're not gonna be able to pull everything, but I felt like there were a lot of heavy hitters, especially the Supreme Court decisions, which were left out of their timeline. So again, I'm not gonna go through their entire timeline. I would recommend you guys watch it. What we're gonna respond to directly is his breakdown of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, um, the solutions that are being presented, and then potentially solutions that he thinks as far as potentially gun control that he thinks would be actually effective. I mean, Seta, let's take a look at what's in this Bipartisan Safer Community Act. So here's what's in the bill. Number one, $750 million to help states implement and run crisis intervention programs. This money can be used to implement and manage red flag programs, which are aimed at keeping guns out of the hands of those who pose a threat to themselves or others. Number two, this legislation closes a years-old loophole in domestic violence law that barred individuals who had been convicted of domestic violence crimes against spouses or partners with whom they shared children or cohabitated with from having guns. All statutes didn't include intimate partners who may not live together, be married or share children. The new bill would bar anyone who is convicted of a domestic violence crime against someone they have a continuing serious relationship of a romantic or intimate nature with from having a gun. So I want to stop at these first two. So the first one is what the Bipartisan Safe Communities Act did as far as expanding or incentivizing states to pass their own red flag laws. Through the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, what the federal government did is they held out millions and millions of dollars saying that if states implement, enforce, or potentially expand their red flag laws, the federal government will then give them more money. So it's this huge carrot that the federal government is holding out to states to not only implement their red flag laws more aggressively, but potentially also get other states to pass red flag laws. Then the second one you hear them mentioning is the closing of the so-called boyfriend loophole. And what they did through the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act is they expanded the definition of against essentially who can bring a restraining order against an intimate partner. They expanded the definition of what an intimate partner is, and they included um, pretty much anyone that you have a connection with or some sort of uh, semi-serious relationship with, they could be considered an intimate partner and then bring those types of restraining orders against you. And this was claimed to close the so-called boyfriend loophole. And again, this is important because like in our last podcast, we talked about how Matthew McConaughey was praising the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act as simply just federal funding and how it's doing all these amazing things. But they completely gloss over all the gun control aspects of what the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act really did. It expanded a lot of federal laws. It incentivized um, more gun control through red flag laws and a lot of other things. It targets 18 to 21 year olds, which we're going to talk about here in just a second, which he covers. And then there was also a lot of unintended consequences. Like I mentioned at the beginning, recently, Joe Rogan put out a tweet where he talked. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. ...about how the Department of Education, I believe, has reinterpreted some of the language in the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act to now say that the federal government will no longer fund some hunting safety courses, some training courses, some archery courses, which traditionally have been funded in some schools by the federal government. Now through the Bipartisan Safe Communities Act, they're going to remove all that funding, which again threatens those types of programs, which have been foundational and fundamental in a lot of schools and a lot of areas. Through this Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, it has had unintended consequences and is stripping away that type of funding and restricting that type of activity. And this is something that we warned against heavily before the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act was ever passed. And we warned that the executive agencies and the executive branch would try to use this law, expand upon its language, and try to implement more gun control. Here in that context, they are trying to actually do hunting and archery control. Again, unintended consequences, but that's how this always happens. Like we've seen the ATF try to expand definitions, implement new rules, and try to do things that are not actually included in the language of statutes. Here you have, I believe, the Department of Education that is trying to do something similar to remove funding from education systems that use, you know, archery programs, hunting programs, again, that are foundational to communities. Requires more gun sellers to register as federally licensed firearm dealers. Number four, more thorough reviews of people ages 18 to 21 who want to buy guns. The bill encourages states to include juvenile records in the National Instant Crime Background Check system with grants, as well as implement a new protocol for checking those records. So again, two really important things that, that get glazed over about what the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act does. And a lot of people, again, like Matthew McConaughey, just tried to praise this bill, but it did a lot of things. One of the first things that they talk about there, or what they're mentioning here is the 18 to 20 year old records expansion, where they're talking about how they are now going to be accessing uh, juvenile records to potentially prohibit people to delay background checks for individuals 18 to 21 from purchasing firearms. And then the one right before that, they talk about uh, further expanding the definition of what an FFL is or who's in the uh, business of dealing firearms. And this is something that's become a big concern for a lot of people. And right now, I believe the ATF is trying to expand upon that to where they're trying to um, include certain private party transactions as uh, being in the business of dealing in firearms to create a new rule, trying to restrict private party transactions. And again, this is all being done through the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. This is also concerning to a lot of um, small time sellers or people who were not actually engaged in the business of selling firearms. But now all of a sudden, the federal government and the ETF says, yes, you are. And therefore, we're potentially going to put you at risk of serious criminal penalties or potentially subject you to have to go through the federal process. So you have to become an FFL dealer to engage in what used to be lawful conduct. Creates new federal statutes against gun trafficking and straw trafficking. The legislation makes it easier to go after those who are buying guns for individuals who are not allowed to purchase weapons on their own. That one to me was always weird in the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act because it was almost redundant. We already had a federal law in place that was against gun trafficking and straw purchases, but then they created a redundancy law that says, okay, we will doubly go against you. 
So again, it, to me, it was just a redundancy, but it was interesting that they put that in there. And last but not least, number six, increases funding for mental health programs and school security. The money is directed to a series of programs, many of which already exist, but would be funded more robustly under the new law. There, they're talking about the federal funding. I think it's up to a billion dollars in federal funding for a variety of things. I think 750 million towards specifically um, education systems. And that is where, again, in the last podcast, we talked about how Matthew McConaughey and his nonprofit is trying to get that money, be the middleman to get that money to go directly to those schools. And we still don't know how this is necessarily going to be implemented, how it's going to work out. But my speculation is, and a lot of people's speculation is, a lot of the times that money just ends up in the hands of um, anti-gun organizations, organizations that are going to push a very specific agenda. And I would have no doubt that that's likely how that's going to play out as well. So which one of these six would have prevented Uvalde from happening? $750 million to implement a run prevents uh, intervention programs? No. Closing the so-called boyfriend? No. Requires more gun sellers? No. Number five, more thorough reviews of those ages 20, 18 to 21. Juvenile record? I don't think he had it. Number five, creates new federal statutes against gun trafficking? Nope. Increases funding for mental health? How? Maybe not. So again, these are good. It's some progress, but would it have prevented so this is where I always begin to diverge from Patrick Bed David. Uh, we've done a podcast where before where he was talking on a podcast with Andrew Schultz um, saying that he supports the Second Amendment. He believes in gun ownership, but then advocated for a bunch of gun control. This, again, is where I deviate from him because he's going through the list of all these things that the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act does, which is essentially a federal gun control law. Um, it was a bill that was introduced to try to implement gun control. It was passed. It's in effect. And as he just mentioned right there in his own video, all this stuff that passed would have done absolutely nothing to stop the incident in Uvalde. Although he's saying here that these are good and they're potentially good. So in some way, he's advocating for gun control, although he's also directly acknowledging that none of these things would have actually prevented anything that happened in this incident. And when you look at the broad spectrum of a lot of these incidents, none of these gun control laws that were passed here would do absolutely anything to stop any of those other incidents. Really what this does is it has direct impacts on the law-abiding people, has direct impacts on 18 to 21 year olds from being able to purchase firearms. It has impacts on people who could potentially be um, get a domestic violence restraining order against them. It has direct impacts on state level red flag laws where red flags laws will be implemented more against individuals and more federal funding will go towards red flag laws. Again, restricting our right to keep and bear arms and other fundamental rights like due process, then we're seeing the more aggressive FFL requirement through the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which has had a downstream effect of now the ATF potentially putting in place a new rule, a new federal rule, uh, again, another rule that they're going to put in place, like the frames and receivers rule, like the pistol brace rule, like the bump stock rule. But now they're going to try to target private party transactions or private party sales through some of the language in the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. So again, a lot of downstream effect of gun control that's going to have absolutely no impact on the incidents in question, but really just impact law-abiding gun owners like me and you. You can say you're for it, you're not for it, but let me give you an idea of what markers we're really dealing with when it comes down to gun control. One is age, two is type of weapon, three is training, four is background checks, five is medical history, what kind of prescription you're taking, six is amount of ammunition you can walk away with, type of ammunition you can get, your upbringing and socioeconomic status, meaning did you, were you raised with a father, parents together, married, all that stuff. 
Next one is police training because Uvalde could have been prevented due to what the cops would have done. That was on them a little bit on what they did. And last but not least, length of time it takes to walk away and take ownership of your weapon. So let's go through these 18 to 21. I think I'm good with 18, I'm good with 21. That's something that we can hash it out and debate. Next one, type of weapon. So I find that interesting because I don't know if this was a video that he did before the Andrew Schultz podcast that we've already reacted to or if it happened before or after. Um, but in the Andrew Schultz podcast, he seemed to be opposed to younger individuals being in possession of firearms. But here it seems like he's almost conceding that he agrees with 18 to 21 year old. So I'm a little bit confused about what his true position is. Semi-automatic weapon, you got, uh, you know, M16s, you got uh, rifles, you got guns. If you were to actually break down what percentage of the shootings were done by semi-automatic weapons or rifles, the number one weapon that they use when they're doing any kind of shootings is a basic pistol that they use, okay? We got three more left. One of them is police training. Yeah, so I agree. I think if you really looked at the statistics, most of the statistics would actually show that a lot of these crimes are this so-called gun violence, that broad term that the anti-gunners and the left like to use. Um, if you actually look at a lot of those statistics, it, the most prevalent type of firearm is handguns. It's not AR-15s. Now, I, I still take issue with he he always calls AR-15s M16s. I don't know why he does that. He, he should know better, especially if he's trying to educate on this topic. These civilian you know, rifles that he's referring to are AR-15s, they're not M-16s, um, but he's mentioned that multiple times. He mentions it multiple times in this video and in other, you know, videos and other podcasts where he's talking about the Second Amendment and firearms. I don't know why he does that, but again, these are not M-16s. These are simply a civilian semi-automatic AR-15s or semi-automatic AKs or some sort of equivalent to those. Those police who didn't go in to do their jobs and their captain was telling them not to go in, the captain should be fired, or the people that didn't go in, there should be some kind of accountability to be in there. I'm not talking about prison time, but either this is not a job for you, because I remember when we're in the military, there was an exercise we did where we had to low crawl, and we're going through, and they're shooting. It's late at night, and it's scary. Some guys couldn't handle it. They stood up. That's a perfect opportunity to tell these guys, military is not for you. Go home. Some people are cops, shouldn't be cops. Some people are teachers, shouldn't be teachers. There's many opportunities when you notice you're just not meant to be a teacher. You don't have the patience for kids. You need to go find a different job. You're not meant to be a cop. You can't handle this kind of pressure. Go to a different job. Now, next item. So I, I very much agree with him there. I think, again, what we saw in Uvalde was a failure of the police department. And I think that just strengthens when you talk about the Second Amendment context, why the Second Amendment is so important, because you're not supposed to rely on the government for your protection. Average response time, I think, is anywhere between 12 minutes or more. So you can't rely on the police to show up. And even what we saw there when the police show up, oftentimes maybe they don't actually do what you anticipate that they're going to do. So the core of the Second Amendment or one of the core aspects of the Second Amendment is your right to self-defense for you to be able to protect yourself and others from imminence, from imminent danger, imminent great bodily injury or death. And so that's why the Second Amendment is so important. And then the other aspect of that, of course, is to fight against a tyrannical government, either foreign or domestic. But one of the primary aspects is your your individual right to self-defense. 
your individual ability to defend yourself in situations like this when even potentially police respond and they do absolutely nothing. So I agree with him here that there was a huge failure of the police department. And I think a lot of that just further bolstered and a lot of people had the conversation of, well, maybe, yes, we should actually have a lot of these teachers armed and trained because even if police show up, what if they don't do anything? How long before I take the gun with me? Now think about this here. Tell me any reason why a person ought to be able to go to a store, buy a gun, who's never owned a gun before, and walk out 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes later. Give me any reason that we're gonna need it, minus there's a war taking place and the government want us to be armed. Let's just say if that's the case, don't you think the government would announce and say, effective today, men can go get guns and all that. Let's just say that ugly situation takes place. Aside from that, why does a person need to get the gun right now and go use it? Can you wait a week? Have you ever been upset at somebody and a week later you got over it? Have you ever gone to an ugly argument with an ex of yours and a day, two days, three weeks later, a week later you were over it? So if you can wait a week to get calm after deciding to do something bad, maybe we give it a week before you can walk away with your gun. What's wrong with that? Maybe we make it two weeks. So this is where I and this is something that he advocated for on the Andrew Schultz podcast. And it seems like something that's very consistent as far as him advocating for some type of gun control. This is a waiting period. He's advocating for either a week long waiting period or a two week long waiting period. And he says, give me one reason or just one example of why someone would need to purchase a firearm and walk out with it the same day. And he says outside of, you know, we're at war and the government itself tells you that, yes, you need to go buy a gun to help defend the nation. Um, I find that interesting that he's saying, you know, the only reason why you would need a firearm the same day is if the government said that you need to. Now, the flip flop to that is. Of course, you might need a gun for one of the core aspects of the Second Amendment, which is to fight against a tyrannical government, either foreign or domestic, you know, domestic included. So you shouldn't have to, you know, the only exception to his thought process shouldn't be that the government is telling you to be armed. Um, but just more practically, I have tons of examples of why someone would need to purchase a firearm and walk out with it the same day. Here in the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, where he's saying that, you know, there are some good things as far as gun control, they talked about domestic violence restraining orders. What about a woman or someone else who is potentially being threatened by an intimate partner? You know, we're all so concerned about intimate partners and that we need domestic violence restraining orders. But what if those are failing? And what if an individual knows that putting a restraining order on you know, an intimate partner will do absolutely nothing. So they want to be armed to defend themselves. And so you're telling that person who's in fear of great bodily injury or death from an intimate partner that they should have to wait potentially up to two weeks to get possession of a farm. There are very highly publicized um, incidents where that's expressly happened to someone where, especially in California, I think there is a very uh, popular one in California where a woman walked into a store, wanted to get a gun to defend herself, just simply a handgun, wanted to defend herself. And she was subject to the California 10 day waiting period. And during that interim of that 10 day waiting period, even though the individual that she was 
had a restraining order against that individual still committed violence against her. And she wasn't able to have a handgun, which she knew she would need to defend herself. And she had warned the police office, uh, police officers and the police department multiple times that her life was in you know danger. She had a restraining order against an individual and it did absolutely nothing. The only thing that could potentially have protected her was an actual firearm. But like you are advocating for Patrick, you know, she was subject to a 10 day waiting period. So that's just one very real world example of why someone would need access to a firearm same day. But also, I think there's a huge disconnect with how Patrick is presenting this, where he's saying, like, why will you need this? Well, this isn't the bill of needs. This is the bill of rights. It's a fundamental right. And if you just even look historically, as required by the Supreme Court in the recent Supreme Court decision in Bruin, if you look at the historical context, there is no historical equivalent during the time of the ratification of the Second Amendment where there was some sort of government or state restriction that would put a waiting period on people being able to obtain a firearm. It's the last one here. Here's what it is. Socioeconomic status, father figure in your life. The more stability, the better the economy is, the more money people make, the, the less situations to want to be desperate to do something bad. Keeping the family nucleus together is important. We keep not giving enough credence to this. This matters. When I'm at home and my kids are running around doing what they're doing, my mother-in-law can say whatever she wants to say. My nanny, my wife can say whatever they say. And then when I come in, things change very quickly. Father I want to stop it right here because I just had another thought. Based on the last podcast, I responded to Patrick on the Andrew Schultz, you know, flagrant podcast when he was advocating for similar situations where he was advocating for a week long waiting period. He talked about the first time he purchased a firearm was because someone broke in, I, I believe, his home or his business and he felt threatened. So he went to go purchase a firearm and he walked out with the same day. You know, in his situation, it seemed like he was OK with that because his life, he felt, was in, you know, in danger and his family's life was in danger and he was OK with walking out with it same day. But here he's saying that, you know, maybe for potentially other people, that's not OK. Maybe he's not advocating for that. He wants some sort of waiting period. And then here he's also talking about, you know, socioeconomic scenarios. And I think this is also where if you were to look at why someone would potentially need a farm same day, there are plenty of people who live in areas that are high crime areas where maybe their houses are being broken into. There's a lot of gang violence and an individual in that situation may not even be able to rely on the police because the police are already failing in their area and they want to take you know their own defense into their own hands. Maybe they have some sort of credible threat against them. And so they want to actually purchase maybe even just a handgun have it in their possession to defend themselves at, you know, in that area that there again is high crime or gang violence or something like that. And they have no other avenue and they can't wait 10 days or 14 days to become in possession of that farm because there are credible, credible threats against them because of the situation they live in because they are not of the higher socioeconomic standing. So a lot of times when things like this are positioned or gun control is positioned, it's in the position of people who potentially are well or off. They don't think about, you know, how this could become a barrier of entry for people of lower economic standing. Um, a lot of times when you talk about permitting systems and waiting periods and background checks and all these additional fees and things that can be placed on as far as gun control, they don't think about how that could actually be a huge barrier to entry for people of lower economic standing because Maybe someone like a single mom who lives in a bad area is not going to have the money to 
go pay the you know fees for background checks, for fees for permits, fees for training, you know, do the waiting period, do the training requirement fees, all those things, you know, background check fees for ammunition. It just all these things start to stack up to where for them to just purchase a handgun and have some ammunition. All of a sudden, you're talking about thousands of thousands of dollars, which this individual might not have. Uh, we need to go back to recognizing the right values and principles. Maybe some of the values and principles we learned from our grandparents, maybe they're right. Maybe we need to go talk about some of that stuff. Maybe we need to say, hey, whatever denomination you are, whatever church you are, whatever faith you are, practice it. Take your kids to church. Take them to, maybe your school is a public school and you're not necessarily able to put your kids in an environment to learn some conservative values. I don't care if you're a Christian, Catholic, seven day, you're, you're whatever, whatever, Jude, whatever you practice, actually put your kids in those types of environments because many instances in those environments, somebody can come across and play the role of a father figure to challenge, uplift, to say there's hope, good things can happen in life as well. I think that plays a very, very important role. So I would agree to this. I think a big failure of what's going on right now in our society is the denigration, the dissolution of you know, fundamental cultural values, uh, religious values. I have my own religious beliefs and, you know, a lot of those religious beliefs bleed into my uh, advocacy for the Second Amendment. I believe the Second Amendment is not just a human right, but it's a God-given right, um, you know, and I'm not going to harp on that here, but I agree with what Patrick's saying, where I think there's been a lot of societal uh, breakdown, cultural breakdown of fundamental traditional values that has then led to a lot of the stuff that we're dealing with here. And I think if we went back to some of the, you know, first principles, some of the core values that America was built on, that a lot of our rights were built on, I think we wouldn't be facing most of the things that we're currently facing. But as we see from the left, from the anti-gun side, you know, their whole agenda is to strip away, to break down those foundations and put in place what they believe is a better system. And a lot of the times what we're seeing here, for example, we have, I think on average, it's like 2000 federal gun control laws in place and state level laws. Like I'm here in the state of California, we have thousands of you know state level gun control laws here in the state of California and what we're seeing here in California and other liberal left-leaning states that have a ton of gun control we're seeing crime rates skyrocketing none of these gun laws are doing absolutely anything the federal law that was passed here through the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act is doing absolutely nothing to stop these incidences, not even would never have even prevented some of these incidents that are in question. And they're going to do absolutely nothing to prevent further incidents. It's just more gun control, more control by the federal government uh, that they want to put in place to slowly chip away our fundamental rights. So that's just my response to Patrick Bet David again. This was something that someone sent me in response to my last podcast that I did, responding to him being on the Andrew Schultz podcast and them talking about gun control and some of the things that Patrick was advocating on that podcast. Someone sent this to me and said, hey, why don't you take a look at this? Because he did a whole video, you know, in a way trying to advocate for the Second Amendment to go push back against the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act and some of these incidents and then some additional, you know, thoughts that he had as far as potential solutions as far as implementing gun control or things that he's potentially advocating for. One of the big ones seems to be some sort of waiting period he's advocating for here in this video. And in the last video that we responded to, he was advocating for waiting periods in that one as well. 
Um, he seems to have a big issue with someone being able to purchase a firearm same day and walk out with it. He's saying there's no, no reason why someone would need to do that. Like I demonstrated, there are plenty of reasons why someone would need to do that. And there are huge consequences to putting restrictions um, on that ability. Again, just my response to Patrick Beck David in this video he did. Let me know your response down below. Um, if you guys like this podcast, make sure you leave a like, a comment, subscribe here to the channel. And also just wanted to mention that the podcast that I'm doing here on the channel is also available audio only. You can get it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, really anywhere that you listen to the audio. So thank you guys so much for all of your support. If you like this video and like support the channel, make sure you like, comment, subscribe. All those things help to fuel the algorithm and it signals to the YouTube algorithm and the audio algorithms that you guys enjoy this type of content, enjoy these videos, that you want more of it, and so it pushes it to more people. But regardless, thank you guys so much for all of your support, and never forget this nation was built by Arm Scholars, and this nation will be maintained by Arm Scholars.